Welcome to episode 101 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for April 8th, 2020, recording live from our studios in Spencerport, New York. We would like to thank our sponsors, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information System, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, BHG Patient Lending, and Medicus IT. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website. This is Sue Cronkite. Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Joining me from our studio in Spencerport is John Gailey, recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. And joining us uh, remotely from Rochester, New York, Jenna Alvarez, Senior Nurse Consultant with AHS, Alex Borneman, Director of Operations with AHS, and Judy D'Ambrosio, Director of Educational Services with AHS. And from Cape Cod, Massachusetts, Lori Rodericks, Director of Clinical Services for AHS, from Atlanta, Georgia, Zach Kalaridis, Financial Consultant with AHS, from West Palm Beach, Florida, Ann Geyer, Chief Nurse, Nursing Officer with SAS, from Plantation, Florida, Keith Grubel, President of BHG Patient Lending, and from Palm, Palm Harbor, Florida, Jim Masters, Life Safety Consultant, for AHS. And as I've said before, I think we're in the wrong place. <laughs> I know. I don't know that that second half of the list knows what they're doing. I, you know, and, and Jim, thank you very much. <laughs> Notice that Jim, if you're watching on the YouTube feed, we really can't see Jim's face, but we can certainly see his backyard there in a beautiful Palm Harbor. And uh, Jim, by the way, I, I don't know if you noticed, I started sneezing before Sue went uh, live. I think it's just from looking at all of that vegetation out there. <laughs> So welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for uh, joining us, uh, both my uh, panel here and uh, all of the people that are listening live. Uh, this has been quite a week already, and it's only Wednesday. Um, so we had a great uh, conference, infection control conference yesterday for all of those that joined us. We had a, a very large audience, actually. We had some technical problems, uh, which uh, can always be solved with more hardware, right, Sue? Yep, more power. <laughs> more power. Like, yeah, <laughs> Get a new house. Yeah, I know. yeah, so we had to upgrade a couple things in the uh, in the studios here, and uh, it, our problem seems to have been solved. Uh, so hopefully for next week's uh, exciting conference, we'll we'll have even more power. I do want to thank Lori. Lori, you did a fantastic job. Thank you so much for uh, a, a great uh, conference yesterday. A lot of people, uh, we got a lot of good feedback afterwards. Uh, we are a little bit behind in getting the certificates and the AU requests out, so we apologize. Uh, I have assigned poor Zach, who's on the line here. Zach will be taking care of that project for me uh, tomorrow. Right, Zach? Uh, just give me a thumbs up. Great. <laughs> um, and uh, starting later today, for those of you who did not attend the uh, yesterday's conference, we will uh, make it available uh, for purchase. If, if you're a client, we'll also make it available for our clients uh, for free. What, what's going to happen if you're a paid retainer, retainer client of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies during the coronavirus crisis, you can listen to the conference for no charge by contacting um, either your contact at AHS or myself and uh, requesting access, and we'll figure out some way to do it. I don't even know how this works yet. Uh, for all others, uh, as we indicated, it will be available for purchase uh, sometime, hopefully, later tonight. Just a reminder as to how you ask questions here um, in the Podbean app. If you're uh, joining us live in the podcast app, uh, type into chat. I see people are already using it. 
Um, you can also email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com, or you can enter it into the YouTube comments, and somehow we will get that information. I can kind of see it over on the screen here, but we got plenty of people monitoring it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's how we do that. So um, a lot of stuff going on. I, I, I know we have a national audience. I did want to mention uh, something that's going on in New York right now. Uh, and most of our listeners, even if they're not in New York, appreciate these comments because I guess what happens in New York eventually spreads across the country. Um, so as John Van Valkenburg, I know he's on here too, and Lisa Altirier, uh, Altieri sent out this morning, there uh, was a new executive order issued last night by Governor Cuomo. And uh, this is uh, what Lisa Altieri uh, actually gave us uh, uh, some information this morning. She says um, that the language was as fouled. New York, uh, New York State Association members should report their inventory, including PPE, ventilators, respirators, BiPAP, anesthesia, and other necessary equipment. Now, the Department of Health has reached out directly to the New York State Association of Ambulatory Surgery Centers, uh, and we have been preparing a list, and I think most of you that are members have received a, a, a document that you are to fill out and send back to the State Association. Um. However, we don't know at this point how the Department of Health is going to request uh, documentation from us as to what equipment and what inventory we have. We're waiting for some uh, a mechanism to be created or some guidance on that. Um, and uh, John, I know you're on. If if you know anything more, uh, you know, feel free just to uh, you know try to call in here, and we'll uh, we'll let you on. But at this point, we have no further information. We have posted the executive order up at the ASC podcast. Up. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Jim. <laughs> uh, at the ASC Podcast uh, website at ASCPodcast.com. Uh, Jim was pointing out that he's in the swimming suit next to the pool here. Uh, and that's really all I have to say about the New York uh, Governor's uh, executive order. Now, uh, yesterday, uh, some information was uh, posted uh, or sent out to New York State Association members regarding. Uh, the testing and maintenance during the coronavirus. And uh, I asked Alex and Jim to kind of clarify that information. So I'm going to turn it over to them right now. Again, what we're talking about is testing and maintenance, basically the life safety side uh, during the coronavirus. So go. Yeah, so um, there's a few differing opinions out there um, um, through, you know, Keys and uh, Ashy and a few others have chimed in, um, including NFPA themselves. Um, but there has been no guidance, um, as of yet from any AHAs or, uh, government authorities. So right now we recommend that you continue all testing, maintenance and drills, um, as you're able to do. Um, of course your drills are going to be kind of wonky right now because you're in the middle of a drill with Mm COVID-19. So as long as you're documenting that. COVID-19 can count as um, one of your disaster drills for the year. Um, so really the, the fire drills are what should continue. And Alex, so, we have we posted on the website an example drill for uh, COVID-19? I, okay. So if you want to yep. use that as a yep. form for uh, documenting the actual event, feel free to uh, to go to our website at ASCPodcast.com. Yeah, yeah, I would think- add too, in there, oh, Alex, that, that maybe if they have like staff that are doing some things, you know, they might be part-time or, or just working a day or two a week. Whatever they're doing outside of the center itself for the center, 
they might want to be documenting what's going on with that activity too. You know, if they're contacting contractors or, or maybe landlords and, and um, building management companies so that they can keep track of actually everything they're doing, get credit for what they're not doing at the center, but behind the scenes. Right. Right. And again, we should stress, uh, we, you know, we kind of acknowledge that, you know, a lot of people are, you know, have their staff furloughed and there's, there's some difficulties in terms of staff in order to actually perform this testing and maintenance and drills. Um, you know, who's going to be drilling if there's nobody at the center. So it, it really comes down to doing as much as you can and documenting why you can't do something if, um, if you're not able to. Um, most um, maintenance personnel, and that includes contractors and such, uh, should be considered uh, essential personnel. Uh, most most New York or most states have them on their list of essential personnel, and NFPA has actually recommended that governments put them on their um, lists. So they should be available to you for the most part to do these this maintenance, um, including, you know, biomed as well. Um, in addition, uh, so you want to make sure that you're, again, you're documenting any decisions that are made in regards to your maintenance and testing. Um, you know, keeping that in your, your COVID-19 binder and really making sure that, you know, when a surveyor comes in later and sees this gap, that you have an explanation for why you weren't testing during that period of time, whether it be because your staff was furloughed or, you know, maybe your contractor shut down and decided, well, you know, we don't want to risk our personnel. So um, even though they should be open. A lot of times too, with let's say a third party sprinkler contractor or such, coming to the center and no one's at the center, they can't get in. They were scheduled to come in on a certain day. You know, you want to make sure that you're communicating with these companies so that they can continue to do their uh, PMs and uh, quarterly or, you know, whatever type of frequencies are needed. Good point. Absolutely. My, sorry, my dog is trying to voice his opinion about this as well, but, <laughs> um, so, and then that brings up a good point too about, um, when you, so now that you've, after you've shut down, when you decide to go and then resume operations, um, the, the center should be making a significant effort. Um, once they've, um, once they've come back to the center before you use anything, make sure that you're testing it. And, um, you know, if you've had a lapse in regular weekly or monthly testing, um, that should be, maybe you do an annual test just to make up for that. Um, those would be the kinds of uh, significant efforts that I would put in. Yeah, possibly you. start a new frequency on the date that you come back into the center. Exactly. And, and keep going, you know, starting, start all over again. Yep. Um, and then there's also the issue as far as whether, um, whether you should be submitting a request, an 1135 waiver request to CMS. Um, it, right now, we haven't seen any guidance that we should be doing this um, from, from a government authority. So 
really the the waiver templates that have gone around um we we wouldn't recommend using yet um and the the current one from ashy really stresses uh it it refers directly to joint commission standards so if you're not a joint commission site those are not applicable to you um and then also it focuses largely on hospital regulations um, and requirements. For instance, you know, things like your kitchen and other places where you just, those are totally not applicable to your surgery center. So um, be very careful if you do decide to submit one of these waivers that, you know, you take all, out all of the stuff that does not apply to your center. And let's just be clear about what we mean by the 1135 waiver, what the states actually requ- request the 1135 waiver. What we're at, what they, if this were to happen, which again we're recommending not, what you're actually doing is notifying your CMS, uh, local CMS um, area office, uh, that you're attaching yourself to that 1135 waiver. I guess is a better term for that. But again, we're not recommending doing that. Going backwards just a little bit too, uh, Alex had mentioned, you know, when you reinstate your operations and you're back in to, to fire your equipment back up and everything, you want to make sure that you're following your manufacturer's recommendations on on all the various equipment you have. We've seen some things last week in the GI where Metavator doesn't want you to shut shut down, right? They wanted you to continue. They've actually retracted that. Oh, they did. They're, they're supposed to be releasing new guidance this week sometime is what we heard from one of our um, listeners. But even even going with, with that same line, the uh, if the scope isn't used in so many days, you know, you have to reprocess it before. You yeah. Go. And um, Olympus had released a statement saying, you know, put it into long term, you know, follow the instructions for use to put it into long term storage. And then when you're back online, um, follow the instructions for use to put it, you know, to restart use. So same would go with any patient care equipment used in the uh, procedure room or ORs. Uh, just check with that manufacturers and make sure that everything is in accordance with their guidelines. Exactly. Jim, I have a question and, and Alex, in regards to the equipment, do you think that since many centers have been out of um, you know, have not been working for quite a while that they should have their electrical checks re redone. That usually is annual. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I would, like I said, I would probably start a new annual cycle when you reopen okay. for some of that. And then, you know, they're recommending generator testing and inspection and everything continue without any interruption uh, just for the sake of the building system. If something does happen where our power goes out, you know, there's still a, a backup source of power there. So they want to be exercising and uh, recording the exercising data on the generator sets. And I would imagine certain systems like fire safety, you just really do not want to uh, avoid uh, doing the testing of those during this time frame, since it's protecting the building, even when people are not there. Exactly. And, and in regards to generator sets, it, it, think of it similar to, you know, your, your snowblower, your lawnmower. When it's off the off season, you're not going to just leave the, the gas in there. Um, that can really harm the, the machine. So the the gas in your generator just sitting there um, un, unused for that period of time might have um, 
prevent consequences basically for the if you're not exercising the generator you mean right okay. and a lot of centers have automatic automatic testing yeah. or automatic run on the generators well they'll run weekly it's only required to do certain tests monthly but they might have it where it runs weekly and nobody's recording that data so somebody should be keeping track of what's going on actually if you're not physically at the plant right and it could malfunction during that test too and right. you might not know about it right Um, and we did want to talk about, too, we, we mentioned putting this documentation in your COVID-19 binder. Um, we have begun work on an example uh, COVID-19 binder um, that we'll be sending out in a few days here um, with certain sections uh, regarding the regulations that are uh, have been put out to you guys and then also um, your documentation of expenses, life safety, training, drill, um, using COVID-19 as a drill, um, all of that should be included in this binder. So it's something that you, you hand to the surveyor when they come on site and, when, and ask for, you know, well, what'd you guys do during COVID-19? Because I, I think that's going to be a very, very common question. Good point. Um, are there any questions about the life safety um, section at this point and what's going on? So I guess the, the big takeaway here is as much as you possibly can with the staff that you have uh, assigned here, you should continue doing the life safety stuff. At this point, CMS has not really told us that uh, uh, even though ASHRAE has uh, recommended that uh, um, uh, you uh, – can suspend some of this testing during this time frame. CMS has not indicated to us that they uh, they agree with that comment. Is that a fair comment? Yep. Okay. And uh, again, <clears throat> sorry, our staff is working on an example binder that we would have you uh, uh, prepare and have available to the surveys. We actually have, uh, do we have four or five? I can't even count right now. We have four surveyors on this call today. Um, so I, I think speaking as a surveyor, speaking as all the surveyors here, that uh, we're going to be looking for that, I think, to, uh, to see how you responded during the emergency and that you're uh, prepared again for uh, something to happen in the future. Okay, if there are no questions, we'll move on to uh, the pay, Paycheck Protection Program. Now, a lot of uh, – so we've been recommending right from the very beginning – that all centers, not just uh, those that are uh, shut down, but uh, those uh, everybody uh, really should apply for the PPP program, the uh, um, Paycheck Protection Program uh, pro, uh, through the uh, CARES Act signed by the uh, president uh, a couple weeks ago. And uh, we do know that uh, some organizations have been having some challenges uh, applying for this. So we called on uh, Keith to uh, talk a little bit about it. Keith is from uh, BHG Patient um, I'm sorry, what's the name of the company again? Patient Lending. Patient Lending. <laughs> sorry about that, Keith. So welcome, Keith, to the no podcast worries, again. Sorry about that. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm happy to be able to join and uh, actually participate with uh, a lot of the folks that I've seen and listened to uh, speak in the industry events before. It's really, really a pleasure to be here. Um, this week has been an interesting one, to say the least. Um, I think starting from, obviously, when the CARES Act rolled out, there was a lot of excitement, a lot of benefit around the PPP program. Um, obviously, given the experience that we have in finance at BHG overall, about 19 years of healthcare finance experience, and myself personally, just about 25 years now in the finance space, 
it has been a very big act to put together in the time that it was put together and the rush to bring it to market, I think, unfortunately, has caused some challenges and there's a lot of frustrations that we're seeing out there. I'm sure all of you are following along on LinkedIn posts and people's ramps. I think that everyone is really looking for uh, the assistance that was promised and it's on its way. It's definitely coming down, but it's obviously not without frustration, not without challenges and hiccups as we've seen. Um, first and foremost, just to put in scale, anytime you're rolling out an undertaking this large to be able to put it together in a matter of a week and a half and try to bring it to market, it's a monumental effort. And I applaud everyone who's been part of that effort from the SBA all the way down to the individual lenders who are trying to provide these loans and help people out to, uh, to keep people on the payroll, to protect people's paychecks and to keep the economy working, especially in the healthcare space. So a couple of things that I want to share with everyone, just to give an update and some color and background, uh, as many of you may or may not be aware, unfortunately, official guidelines were not rolled out to lenders until very late Thursday evening of last week when the loan was to go live on Friday morning. There was also multiple changes to the application and the information that was requested of the uh, lenders to collect on behalf of the SBA to make sure that the SBA would guarantee these loans. To give everyone a little background and to step back, essentially the way SBA puts money into the market is allowing individual bank or uh, a non-bank licensed SBA lender, which is only 14 of them in the nation. We happen to own one of those licenses, as you heard from Mark Schmidt last week. But the way that the SBA puts money out into the market is through those lending facilities and through those lenders who are able to create loans, process and originate those loans on behalf of the SBA or under the authority of the SBA, and then go ahead and fund them. Some challenges that have popped up this week that we've seen are, uh, number one, obviously, the last minute changes to rulings and guidelines. Number two, the overwhelming amount of applications that have come in have literally knocked a number of major bank servers offline. You saw a number of the national bank partners literally shut down their portals and say, we cannot take any more applications. We are inundated with applications. Um, you're seeing a lot of people panicking and clamoring to submit these applications because while the amount of money allocated for the program sounds significant at $375 billion or so, unfortunately, when you're spreading that across all the small businesses, it's not a lot of money. And so I think the advice we've been giving everyone is great advice to make sure that they're enrolling and utilizing the program. I think what we have to do right now is set a little bit of expectation for the people that are applying for it um, and create some clarity. So first and foremost, the greatest news that we've heard is that the government is already working on additional funding for the program. Now, there's no guarantee that that will come. So I don't want to tell anyone to stop their application process. But know that there is additional funding in the works to create more availability and more protection or more loans under the PPP program. It's a great solution. It's helping people manage temporary cash flow and keep people employed, but it's not the only solution available out there. And that's another big point that I want to make to everyone is that the PPP loan will get you approximately eight weeks of payroll. And there is an allocation for a little bit extra uh, loan amount or extra monies for your overhead. That's excellent to help for a short term. But the reality is, as we all know, we'd like to think that in God willing, God willing, in eight weeks, we're all back to work and our centers are back up and running. But I always say it's best to be prepared for the worst than to be underprepared and receive the worst. And so that preparation comes down to not just leveraging something like the PPP program, 
But looking at some of the other SBA programs that are available out there right now, there's additional loan programs that could help out for specifically surgery centers and uh, anyone that's been impacted by the uh, COVID-19 crisis. So the first is what's known as an EIDL or an Economic Injury uh, Disaster Loan. Those are really great loans. They go up to $2 million. They have much longer repayment terms. They're um, easier to process and qualify for. They're a little bit more understood in the market. It's more of an established plan that was put into action. So there seems to be a little bit more streamlined process going through those. And while it doesn't have the forgiveness for the eight weeks of, uh, of uh, payroll, it will get you some working capital as well and let you extend the term out. The other thing is the SBA 7A loan. The 7A loan is a great tool to start establishing some more working capital and getting some kind of reserves in your account. Uh, John, as we've been talking about, one of the things I've been telling with a lot of my clients and people that we speak to is this should be looked at as an opportunity to prepare yourself to avoid any economic disasters in the future, but it's also an opportunity for you to sit down and really understand the financial viability of your center and to start looking at what you need to survive for the next six months. I personally say six months because as we all know, when we get back to starting to see patients, there'll be a huge influx of patients coming in for procedures that have been delayed. There's going to be a huge amount of uh, claims being submitted to your payers, which is gonna slow down and delay the reimbursements on those claims. You're gonna have to purchase supplies and pay your overhead. You're gonna have to maintain stock of all the uh, items that you need to to do all your procedures, and you need capital available to do all those things. And you, and you might be doing things. procedures that you had not done before that might cost you more money to, to do that, or you might have to purchase equipment even for that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, even to the, the, to the centers that are doing procedures right now, and they're doing the overflow from hospitals, which, by the way, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for providing those essential services to people out there. It concerns me a little bit because we're still working through how are they going to get compensated for that care? Are they being compensated from the hospital who's actually doing the billing and claims for those? Are they transitioning over to a temporary hospital status and now having to transition back? What does that do to their claims reimbursements? How do they manage that through their payer contracts? I'm confident that we will get some government clarity and that we will get support to be able to streamline this. But in the meantime, John, there's a lot of people that are expending capital right now to provide care and they don't know how they may be reimbursed. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I think the longer term effects of COVID-19, everybody knows is really boils down to the financial impact that it's going to have on everyone. And uh, it's one that's very real. And so I keep telling clients, prepare yourself for a minimum of six months worth of reserves and capital. Um, We're actually putting together an ebook right now that I'm excited to launch. And we'll be touching on some of these items next week in in your virtual conference, which we appreciate the opportunity to take place and or to take part in, but that's going to help create some clarity for people on how to start preparing for the financial challenges that are ahead, how to understand where they are from a financial perspective, where they may need to be as far as reserves and balances set up, and how to start getting there. So to circle kind of back, I know that we've done a, a very big circle, but to circle back, the first item there is that PPP program. This is a great opportunity for centers and for healthcare providers to secure those paychecks, but know that it's not going to come without challenges. Your lenders that you're working with right now are dealing with navigating some cloudy rulings from the SBA. There's not a ton of clarity that was provided on some of the rulings that were rolled out late Thursday to yesterday morning. You're still getting updates from the SBA on how to do that. 
That's expected with a program this big. Know that there's a huge run on resources, meaning that there's a lot of people applying for these loans and that as much as the SBA was hoping to be able to process these loans and provide checks in as quickly as two weeks, it may take a little bit longer. So keep that in mind. Don't wait till last minute to apply for these loans. The other thing that I want to uh, remind people is as they're going to apply for these things, to be prepared for the items that might be required. Some of the documents that might be requested during this process. You can find them on the SBA's website. I could share with you a little bit that the main area that people are looking at is how do you substantiate your payroll? Mm -hmm. What does your payroll look like? And they're going to look at your annualized payroll. And what they're trying to dial into is your average monthly payroll. And we're going to take that average monthly payroll. They're going to multiply that times 2.5. So in other words, two and a half months. So if your average payroll is $10,000, they're going to multiply that by 2.5. So in that case, you'd be at $25,000. And that's the loan amount that you'll be eligible for. Those loan amounts will be capped at $10 million. Uh, just so that people know the repayment on those loans, while the loan amount that is covered for the, uh, for the um, qualified expenses, for eight weeks of qualified expenses, may be forgiven. Anything over that that was utilized for miscellaneous working capital will have to get repaid. The repayment terms are two years on those loans, so they're pretty generous in the amount of time that you're given. And the interest rate is down at 1%. So it's a very, very, very affordable loan. It's a very affordable opportunity. Uh, some of those areas that are beneficial to the customer are some of the areas that unfortunately are being a little bit challenging for the banks because at 1% interest, obviously, there's very minimal margins for a bank to be able to operate and to be able to provide capital to the markets without incurring costs. So that's some of what the government is working through is how do they accelerate those capital, uh, that capital to the banks to avoid uh, banks taking a loss for originating these loans. So there's a lot of moving parts, as you can see, going through this. I think the, uh, the main takeaways that everyone should be aware of is that the program is going through its bumps and bruises, which is natural, again, when you roll out an undertaking of this size in this quick a period of time, we should almost expect that there's gonna be some delays and challenges. So get involved immediately, get involved quickly, Make sure you have the information available for your lender and complete that application as soon as possible. Make sure your lender that you're working with, by the way, is a licensed SBA lender. It's another big point that I want to make. Make sure that they are a licensed SBA lender and they're accepting applications. Just so you can ensure that your application isn't being brokered or pushed over to a third party, but that you're going directly to a lending source who's eligible to make those loans. And lastly, don't let the PPP be the only solution that you look for. Really take inventory of where you are from a reserves and cash flow perspective. Make sure that you're looking for longer term financing that sets you up for success and continue to be evolving and looking at everything in your financial house to prepare you for long term comeback and growth through that comeback. Uh, as you were speaking, I just got an uh, email from our bank uh, <laughs> because we've, we've applied for one also. And uh, it's funny because I'm not going to mention the name of the bank, but uh, they wrote back and they said, please don't email us. We will email you when we have more information. Don't call us. We'll call you. Don't call us. We'll call you. Yeah. It's, um, so listen, the SBA's website itself crashed multiple yeah. times over the weekend from what I understand. It's, you, you, we have a country full of people that are hurting and that, that need this program. Right. I want to make sure that this message isn't discouraging to people, but it's setting realistic expectations because I always say, John, 
if you set realistic expectations, you know what you're dealing with. We all know how to proceed from here. Right. Um, I think a lot of people were really hoping that this was, I'm going to submit an application. It's going to get instantly approved and I'm going to get a check in, you know, 48 hours or a week yeah. or so. And everything's going to be hunky dory. And unfortunately it's not. So my big point there is to make sure you're understanding the timelines that it may take for you to get this benefits and to be preparing otherwise. So if that means looking at a temporary working capital loan through a direct lending source and getting some quick working capital, absolutely take advantage of that opportunity. Mm-hmm. You should always be preparing yourself in this time. And for my years of, of experience, having been through, unfortunately, the recession, experiencing it very, very challenging, a uh, very challenging time myself where I lost a lot financially. I literally was to the point of, of um, absolutely nothing and learning how to manage people's finances and my own finances through those challenges, learning how to help people survive and keep their business afloat and grow through it. It's been really beneficial for me to kind of take a look back and learn those lessons and be able to help people reposition themselves and grow through these challenges. So again, prepare yourself for success. Don't sit and wait for this program to be the uh, be all and all or to be the, uh, the uh, one fix for everything. I want everyone to really kind of take advantage of this opportunity to look out at their horizons financially and prepare themselves for success long term. You know, Keith, you bring up a point that I've been preaching in my, uh, I probably shouldn't use the term preaching since I'm a minister also, but what I've been talking about (laughs) in uh, my uh, speeches over the years is the importance of having enough cash. And people have laughed at me over the years saying, you know, listen, you know, I work with doctors. They're just going to take all the money that's left in the bank account at the end of the month and they're going to run with it. And I've been saying Mm -hmm. for years, you got to have them absolute minimum of 60 days of cash. Um, you know, what I, I'll say, okay, you can bring it down to 30 days if you've got a, you know, a substantial line of credit available to you and it hasn't been tapped. Um, but, you know, people over the years have said, well, you know, we've never really had a, a major problem here. Well, now you see why we are telling you to make sure this isn't, this isn't going to end here. This could happen again. We, you know, we, we've learned, uh, you know, to expect the unexpected. And uh, um, so a, a big takeaway is make sure you always maintain a healthy cash balance. Make sure that you have a, a good line of credit, no matter what your situation is, available to you uh, to be able to call upon at any time. And I think that your takeaways here is definitely sign up for the PPP program, the Paycheck Protection Program, but understand that that's only two months worth of uh, money, um, it, you're probably going to be much more than that. payroll and a little bit of overhead. You're that's correct. You're significantly more than that. Yeah, you're a good point. And to get to your point, I mean, I guess we're very, uh, I'm a little bit more conservative. I generally tell people you want to be sitting on at least three months of cash. And I know that seems like a lot of money, yeah. but it's easy to set aside and to develop that kind of a fund to be able to create it. And here's the reason why I say that, John. In markets like we're experiencing right now, you're seeing financial catastrophes in a lot of areas. Banks are already tightening their line of credit restrictions. Yeah. So that line of credit that you may have had that was untapped, chances are, slowly but surely, they're either raising the credit score requirements for it, reducing your available credit. They're going to change lending guidelines sooner or later to tighten and limit liabilities in the event that this economy does not recover at the pace that we're all hoping it will. So I tell people lines of credit are great to have, but those can get called very, very quickly. And at the end of the day, the old saying stands true, cash is king. Yeah, I agree with you. And I'll certainly revise my recommendations. I I guess people won't be laughing at me anymore when I say that you need that much cash. Uh, At least we'll be able to. (laughs) I finally have a good story here about it. So, You know what? We've all experienced a great economy for so long, and we've been blessed to enjoy it. And I think it's provided so much growth opportunity, especially in the ASC market, for us to be able to 
uh, flourish to be able to enjoy injections of loans and private equity monies to help a lot of our centers grow to really build the ASC business to where it is today. I mean, a lot of the economy uh, has supported that growth. And now, unfortunately, as we're seeing that change, we've got to be prepared for the backside of it. I think it's something that's relatively new to the ASC market. You know, so if you think about where the market has gone from the first or from the most recent recession to today, the scale has changed so dramatically and we've become so much of a bigger business. At the same time, we're operating on thinner margins than ever. And as you mentioned, a lot of times we're learning the bad habits of taking the equity off of the table and taking disbursements as quickly as possible. We're not realizing that these moments in life do happen and it's better to be a little bit prepared than uh, than to be uh, standing behind the curve. Okay, and we actually just got an email from someone else saying that they had submitted a loan, submitted for a loan, and um, they were said to wait again until they got an email. Oh. And um, yep. they're doing, you know, and that they're just doing it as quickly as they can. But um, yep. it sounds like everybody's going to be having um, trouble. Yeah, and we, we talked to we one of our... certain banks receiving tens of thousands of applications within the first hour of the, of the um, program being opened up Friday morning. Yeah, I, I was uh, listening to the uh, um, president speak, I think it was yesterday, and um, one of the questions from one of the um, reporters was, uh, why <clears throat> why are the major lenders only accepting applications from their existing clients? And of course, you know, the real answer there is they can barely keep up with the requests from their own uh, clients, let alone people that they don't even know or have never had a banking relationship with. Uh, so I think that's the other part of this challenge here is that if you don't have a strong banking relationship, you don't have a banking relationship with an approved SBA loan uh, organization, um, bank, uh, you're going to have some more problems, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, unfortunately, so the SBA is already starting to jump in and look at this a little bit. Okay. And um, there are a number of banks that are limiting where or how they're able to deploy their resources. And it's really just a matter of their economic ability to lend. Essentially, a lot of lenders have already exceeded what's known as their legal lending limits by offering a certain amount of these of these SBA loans. And they start saying, well, we've got to take care of our clients and our clients that have deposits with us and other loans with us. So you're putting the banks in a really difficult position. The FPA ruling technically says that you're supposed to offer it to any applicant for it. So in certain aspects, the SBA uh, ruling requires that banks open up to everyone, but we haven't put banks in a position to succeed in this rollout. I think that's the big takeaway is we, we were hastily, hasty to get a solution to the market, and there's a lot of the details that are still being worked through. I don't think it's a bad program by any means. I think it's a phenomenal program. I don't think that the SBA was malintended in doing it. I think that we went to the market really quickly, and in our speed and effort to bring a solution to market, we may have left a couple of things um, kind of untied and loosened up. So uh, we're pulling back around and we'll be able to um, hopefully clean this up here in the coming weeks. There's a lot of conversation already about the SBA and the federal government working together to provide a special funding vehicle for banks to have access to the capital that they need immediately to open up these applications to every applicant out there. Uh, there's conversations about letting SBA lenders go directly to the Federal Reserve and borrow directly from the Fed window as a normal bank would. So there's a lot of conversation that's happening on the backside, and it is a very, very high area of focus. I know that we as a licensed SBA lender have been petitioning uh, our, our congressmen and getting involved with our political action committees to make sure that 
we're getting as much benefit as possible in in um, in, the, in the lending aspects. Okay, oh, that, that brings cool. me to another point. By the way, Keith. there's a ton of Keith. benefit package. Yes, sir. Keith, we have a sorry, question. Sorry, we do have another another oh, question. Um, they were having trouble with the chat, so they emailed it in. They said, um, if we have furloughed our staff already and want to apply for PPP, do we have to call our staff back now? And if not now, when will yes, we have to I've... in order to have loan forgiveness? So, yes, you have to maintain your staff on payroll in order to get forgiveness for that loan. It's very important that you read the guidelines for the uh, SBA PPP loan. But essentially, anyone who was on payroll after February 20th would have to come back on payroll and has to be maintained on payroll, I want to say, for a total of six months beyond. Don't quote me on that. The rulings are directly on the website as far as how long they have to remain on payroll. But the goal here is to keep people... If you want to think about this conceptually, what they're looking to do is avoid people going on the unemployment lines. They want to keep mm-hmm. them on the employed payroll. And okay. I believe so they have until June. I believe they have until June thirtieth in order to bring those people back on board, right? That's that's the date, correct? June thirtieth. They have until to bring them back on board and to be able to get get them back onto the payroll so that they can have the uh, the forgiveness of the program. And then would get, by the way, as you get through the application, there is a detailed breakdown on the last page of the application okay. with all of your due dates as far as when they come back on, how long they have to stay on, et cetera. Okay. And is that just for full-time staff or do part-time and per diem staff count? And actually, I can answer that because <laughs> we have a different industry here. Did you just Keith? go through it? Yeah. <laughs> well, because... Uh, so our per diem, st- again, you're looking at the total uh, payroll amount, too. That's how my, how you figure out the, the uh, calculation. Um, per diem staff are not actually considered um, uh, employed staff, shall we say. I think what we're trying to say here is that uh, you're going to want to maintain that same level of employment. So if you're looking at a eight-week period of time, you're going to want to have that same level of staff uh, after, or, or at least by uh, June 30th, that you had before uh, you let people go. So it's not so much that they're going to look at, at count; they're going to look at dollar amounts. Okay. And, and again, it's people um, that are, are less than. Uh, John, they're actually looking on the newest version of the application. They are looking at both. They're okay. asking for your employee headcount and the dollar amount of your payroll. So, uh, I, thank you for the clarification. Um, did, when they're looking at the headcount, are they looking at uh, full time? I mean, are they looking at FTEs or the actual headcount? Um, I don't have clear definition of it. I'm trying to jump online and be able to find it. I know that all of the information is on a clear document on the SBA's website that walks through exactly how the PPP program works, who they are on there. Now, by the way, if you have, I know that some contracted employees that may have not been able to get counted into your headcount, they could apply for the PPP themselves as well. So sole proprietors, independent contractors, and self-employed persons can also apply for a PPP loan based on their pay, uh, their average payroll. Yeah, we're not talking about uh, 1099 people in a surgery center. So they would be um, uh, they would be employed, but they empl- what we refer to as per diem. So they don't have a guarantee as to how many hours. So that is going to be, I guess we're going to have to get some research done in that area just to kind of get some clarification. Um, and again, I think this whole conversation helps point yeah. to the fact that we just, you know, we're, we're challenged because the information comes out uh, sporadically. Uh, I don't think anybody has a solid answer, but we will try. We'll work with Keith, too, on this to try to see if we can get some better clarification on this. And I might have missed this, but is it all or nothing? Or can you, yeah. if you have to the, cut your staff in half, 
do you get to still apply for a loan? You do, but a smaller yeah. amount. So. Well, no, you. you I, I, I the issue is going to come down to later on how much you're going to have, um, um, written off. I'm sorry, what's the term? Forgiven. Forgiven, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. That if you don't bring all that forgiven. stuff back, you're going to yeah. have a, a lesser amount forgiven than you did beforehand. So again, the whole point here is that at least you're going to be getting some money in order to pay those bills. Mm-hmm. You just might not have all of it forgiven, depending upon how many people you bring back. Okay. Correct. And if it's not forgiven, you have those uh, those loan terms that we talked about earlier. Right, which are very favorable at 1%. Yeah, try to get mm-hmm. a loan like that. <laughs> and uh, that's why I else. say, you know, this is not the end-all, be-all. This will solve for part of the problem, but continue to look for more permanent long-term financing solutions. Right. Uh, not just for your staff, but obviously for your center. Okay. Thank you very much, Keith. I appreciate it. Jenna, uh, let's move on to the CMS CMS memorandum reminder regarding temporary closure. So um, we talked last week, the week before, about um, notifications of, um, or who to notify that you were closing. And we had said, don't worry about CMS. Originally, we were saying you're supposed to notify your crediting organization. Now, at least Triple HC has come back and said, don't worry about it for just the temporary closure response to COVID-19. And CMS did put out a memorandum specifically saying um, you don't need to notify them uh, about temporary closures during the outbreak. However, they did specify that if um, you don't resume operations within 30 days of um, the end of the public health emergency, then you do need to notify them, which I think most of our centers, all of our centers should be able to open within that 30 day period and will want to open within that 30 day period if not before. Um, So that shouldn't be a problem. And then the other thing they did put out a recommendation for is um, to, for those that are temporarily shut down or limiting operations that you should post notices um, at your center and on your website. notifying people of your limited hours or your closure. So this is actually a change to some of the a change in some of the advice that uh, we had given earlier where we uh, suggested at this point not to uh, post anything on the website. Now CMS has uh, made it very clear that they expect you to um, uh, post a sign on your uh, on the outside of your building or at the outside of your facility as to uh, your hours of operation, revised hours of operation, and also to make a note on your uh, website. And um, we're posting the memorandum on the um, on the ASC website. podcast website, yeah. And that probably um, is in the daily update section. Uh, just an FYI, we, we provide a lot of uh, good information on the ASC podcast website. The most up-to-date information is under the section referring to the daily updates. There is another section where we have uh, like an action plan, and that unfortunately is a little bit behind. Uh, so if you want to know the most recent information, always go to the uh, daily update. And I did not po- – I just remembered I did not post today's daily update to the website. I'll do that after the uh, the episode today. I apologize about that. Uh, do we have any questions about the memorandum? Seeing none. 
I did want to make a comment about the Hospital Without Walls program. or the. So you might remember that uh, CMS has, uh, has allowed ambulatory surgery centers uh, one of two options. One is to contract with hospitals where you basically lease out your facility to a hospital. They come in, they operate uh, the, uh, the ASC as a hospital for a period of time uh, as specified within the lease. Uh, they basically bill, or they do bill, uh, for all the services that are performed there. They'll provide the supplies, they'll provi- uh, provide the staff. You know, there'll be some contractual issues. Maybe uh, some additional staff would be available uh, from the, the and, and would be paid for um, uh, uh, under the contract uh, between the hospital and the surgery center. There is a second option. So in addition to contracting with the hospital is you you are allowed to become a temporary hospital. And I a couple of people have reached out to me about that possibility. I highly recommend that you pass up that opportunity. Um, guidance, uh, CMS did provide some guidance on the, I can't remember, I think it was the third. Um, remind me, guys, was it the third? Well, they provided some guidance basically showing, uh, indicating uh, the process for doing that. The, the issue comes down to what regulations do you follow? We would presume, and I think on our morning call this uh, today, uh, we as a as an organization kind of agreed that you're probably following the conditions for participation as a hospital. Uh, however, I would venture to say most of us um, in the amateur surgery industry are not aware of what the conditions for participation are. I happen to know some of them because I work with hospitals over the years, but uh, they're they're much more. Um, there's much more to them, obviously, than a surgery center, uh, than the conditions for coverage. Uh, and uh, trust me, you wouldn't be able to meet many of them because uh, there would be uh, a lot of inpatient-oriented stuff. Uh, the, the feeling of our staff has been, and speak up, uh, Lori, because you mentioned it earlier, that you felt that if, if people are going to do this option, they're really going to become a, um, an inpatient uh, facility, basically housing uh, people temporarily uh, during yeah. that time. I, I truly do believe that because um, the number of surgeries have uh, dropped dramatically, whether, you know, obviously all the ASCs, but also the hospitals with their um, their surgeries, they're pretty much just the urgent or emergent surgeries that are going on. Mm-hmm. So they've even taken their staff, a lot of their staff that aren't um, participating in, in that anymore because their numbers have dropped dramatically and have put them throughout the hospital in uh, situations where hopefully they are comfortable performing their, their functions. Um, when you look at the hospitals that are being built or the sites that are being uh, changed into um, hospitals such as in New York, the Javits Center, uh, in Massachusetts, uh, the DCY Center, they're putting up tents, uh, the, the boat, you know, the, the, the huge ship. Comfort, yeah. um, they're, they're talking about maybe hotels that could serve as hospitals. Well, those are going to be to take care of patients that are ill, not patients needing surgery. And uh, your surgical center is probably going to do the same function, um, but more on a critical type basis, not your I don't want to say run of the mill patient because every patient that is hospitalized is there for a reason, but they're going to probably send the um, ones that are going to need oxygen and those type of supplies that you have at your facility that a, a tent wouldn't have unless it's piped in or a hotel won't have. So I would imagine you'd be set up as a, a triage unit um, for the sick and not for the surgically needed. But that's my opinion. 
Yeah, I, I, again, we are really not recommending going down that route. There's so many questions as to how you would be regulated. Uh, if you read the the notice, which I think we posted on the website, maybe not. We'll update it tomorrow. We'll post it on the website tomorrow. Um, I, there's just too many questions there, and I think that that's uh, then then you're no longer an ambulatory surgery center. You're going to have to switch back to an ambulatory surgery center after you're done. There's regulatory issues. If you read the regulations, they talk about the possibility of surveyors coming in and surveying you during that time, albeit mainly for infection control. I just I think that we've got enough to deal with just trying to maintain our license and our certification as an ambulatory surgery center, let alone you know uh, becoming a temporary hospital during this time frame. So. Um, Anne uh, is uh, also online with us here, and I thought Anne would talk a little bit about uh, staffing in the stay-at-home environment. So go ahead, Anne. Well, I'm, most of the centers that I work with are finding that they can't do cases. And what crossed my mind after listening to Lori's podcast yesterday and our last podcast on Friday was we talk about working from home, but your nurses aren't equipped from work from working from home. Um, unless they have an additional task, such as writing up reports for QAPI, doing infection prevention reports, the things that the nurses do that are your clinical um, providers of care, they're at home and now they have a new role. They're either teachers, they're uh, watching their kids who were in school before. I mean, it's. I think what um, I was struggling with was they don't know where the money's going to come from if they've been furloughed. And yeah. Keith's uh, suggestions were excellent, but it doesn't help today. Um, they're trying to control expenses at the surgery center, but what are our nurses doing? And what I'd like to do, some of them are leasing their nurses to the hospital. And I, I'm with Lori. If I'm an OR nurse and they want to send me to the ER to work, I'm a duck out of water. You do not want to do that. If you're a, 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 a PACU nurse and they send you to a medical oncology floor, well, the pace is totally different. So I think that the, the um, nursing staff has to feel comfortable because they want to provide safe care. And the government needs to protect the nurses by saying you're not going to get sued, kind of like the Good Samaritan Act does. You do the best you can do under the circumstances and the lawyers can't come in afterwards and say, well, you should have said no to that job. Um, I, I just wanted to start a dialogue here and um, say, what are, are the people on this call, the people that you work with, John, all of you at um, the company, what are you seeing the clinical nurses doing if they're not being leased to the hospital? And I would encourage anybody who's listening in to answer through the Podbean app or YouTube or write on the email address and just let us know because I'll be addressing some of this on the, the um, virtual seminar next week, but this is a big deal. Right. And I, I can speak for the, the clients that I've had ongoing contact with. I mean, most of these centers are really the only person working right now is the nurse manager and or the administrator. Um, so at this point, mo unless they're, uh, operating on a limited a number of cases, uh, there's very limited staff, uh, working right now, which of course gets to the point that Keith made, you know, we're going to have to bring these people back on board if we're going to want to be able right. to get that, that funding, uh, very soon. Uh, any comments? Well, I think I had pushed that. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Ann. 
I was going to say, I've even had pushback from some of my centers saying, we don't want to pay the employees to come in and do inventory. Well, now you look at what Governor Cuomo is asking for, and it's beyond a physical inventory. He's looking for inventory of equipment. So you're going to have to pay those people to come in. I want to know if other states are requiring the same thing. Because if they are, that may only be a two-day gig in the surgery center, but we're not going to have any choice. We're going to have to do it. And all of it comes down to the bottom line. You know, and before we reopen, there's going to be a tremendous amount of uh, money spent on salaries to get the center ready to go with no revenue coming in. Yeah. And again, to Keith's point about the need for capital. And I was actually um, sharing with some folks who were asking for ideas and just kind of what do we do during this downtime? How do we keep staff engaged if we're not furloughing them or how do we make the best use of staff? And one of the things that I, I strongly suggest and kind of what I spoke to earlier is communication and setting expectations. You have a very, very, very scared patient population out there right now who are going to be expected at some point to have a procedure rescheduled, who are going to need to come back into your centers who are going to need to get at least some expectations set as to what is it going to look like? What's different? What's changed? I mean, we're going to have to deal with our normal patient flow plus the backlog. I would say, you know, it might take a little bit of training, but what about using some of that clinical staff to call out and advise your patients, your existing patients that were scheduled as to when your estimated timing is or what you will be providing an update, letting them know what information might be needed to be updated before their procedure like Do they have new insurance benefits? Have they changed insurance carriers or potentially lost their insurance? Um, What what additional questions will be needed to be cleared from a medical screening before they come in for these procedures? That's a lot of communication, a lot of outreach and effort that we struggle with day-to-day with the standard volume. I'd imagine that, you know, leveraging some of the clinical staff, and it may seem like quote-unquote busy work, but this is work that has to get done. And I think it's a great time for us to shine and show our level of communication and compassion and commitment to our patients to build that loyalty with our facilities. And it might be a great way to call them and just check in on them. How are you doing? How are you feeling? How is your pain? Are you communicating with your primary? Do you have everything that you need? We're looking to schedule you for such and such date. Let, you know, we'll be keeping you posted. Keep in mind, we'll need to update these things and we're here for you. If you need anything, here's our phone number. Feel free to reach out. Yeah. I mean, you know, I know some- it's not the ideal use, but it might be a good one. Was, is something we're going to have to do. While you were talking, you know what just slid through my mind? H&P's within 30 days. Yeah. So if, if you, really. <laughs> no, I mean, you're right. You know, you're right. Got this. Okay, so now you've got all these patients that had their H&P's, and they were all current. Well, they're not yep. anymore. Yeah. So I'll that's a whole go. other issue. Oh, yeah. Well, the, mm-hmm. you, that's happy about one that. of the least favorite things for the doctors to do. And they're going to say, this wasn't my fault. Can't CMS overlook this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I guess another point we should make. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, you applaud, Keith, because with so many people furloughed and so many people out of work, we're going to have a whole lot of people who no longer have insurance coverage. And that didn't, I'm, I'm giving Keith a huge accolade because it didn't even occur yeah. Uh, As a nurse, I wasn't even thinking about the people that had um, cancellations and whatnot to even, you know, think about what's going on in their minds and also wondering, are they coming into a safe facility? Yeah. Yeah. You're going to have to reassure them. um, Yesterday, one of my centers who's been closed, but is planning to reopen, they were asking for some advice on what to add to their website to reassure 
patients, um, mm. you know, that it is a safe environment. And we had given, um, actually, I took the infection control addendum that we had written, um, that Lori had written, uh, and it's up on our website. And I, I, I turned it into a little, uh, a little, you know, thing for the patients to know, you know, this is all the things that we are doing to protect you. But the patients that are going to be the most afraid are the ones that aren't, are less likely to know how to get to the website. So this phone call, this reassuring mm -hmm. personal touch is, is priceless. However, we and, do have to remember that we're, you know, we're working with an office here because the office is the one that's going to be making the, you know, rescheduling that case. So, uh, Whatever yeah. we're doing here, we have to and it doesn't, Yeah, Good point, John. We may say well, we're looking to open this for surgery on June 1st, and we're anticipating that. Well, that may not work with the physician's right. schedule. And well, and a lot so, of the offices are closed right, right now, too. Can't even get a hold of them. Right. Piece done. Yeah. Yep. So from the day we anticipate starting, technically, they may not be able to get their H&Ps done. Right. If, if CMS doesn't relax the guideline, which they've already said that you don't need an HNP, right? But the but accreditation organizations haven't necessarily changed that. So now you've still got the guidance if you're if you're accredited, then that adds a whole layer of complication. True, very true. I'm just curious. I just you know for the people that are on this podcast. I'd, I'd love it if you could email John's team and just say, what are you doing? How are you handling this? Because, or email me um, at SIS, it's ann.geyer at SIS first, and let's put our heads together and see what we can do to help out the, the centers that are at home. And believe me, there's administrators working from home, which I still haven't figured out how they're doing that because... Well, to that, point, a, actually, to that point, actually, to that point, go ahead, Sue. Yeah, Mary had had a comment. Um, nurses cannot do QAPI as medical records are required, and paying them is not good. They are coming in for emergencies and paid for those hours. I think what she's saying is that the only time that, uh, you know, a medical record is in is when you had to deal. I, I, so I, I, we probably need to step back here. One of the things that is always ongoing, because the lawyers are always working, um, is, uh, uh, you know, uh, medical record requests. And there's two sources, two main sources of medical record requests in a surgery center. One is from the lawyers who are in the process of suing somebody usually or trying to get a worker's compensation claim paid for. Um, and the second thing is uh, uh, another healthcare provider who is requesting medical records so they can uh, coordinate the care. One of those, mainly the, one, the request from a medical uh, provider, is, I would say, urgent in most cases. Otherwise, they wouldn't be requesting the record. And the second is uh, something that uh, uh, at least our lawyer friends have said uh, doesn't need to be prioritized right now. Um, you know, when if you have an opportunity to get somebody in there to do it, then they should send those out. But certainly taking care of a request from another medical provider is really extremely important. Um, to Mary's point, what she's saying is that how do you, how do you continue doing copy if you don't have access to medical records and the medical records are not up to date? That's a very good point. Well, yeah. she's got a point. Maybe yeah. she can review her copy plan. Maybe she can go back and if you have reports to submit where you've already reviewed the medical records, but you haven't written up the report right. and you take out the patient identifier. I mean, I'm at least that's one task that could conceivably be done. Um, but that's the, the clinical staff, John, as I was writing my talk for next week, 
I thought, well, I'm addressing working from home and I'm talking about setting up your home office and I'm talking about the, the things you can do to, to keep your sanity. But then I thought, well, wait a minute. What about the nurses? They're yeah. finding themselves like a fish out of water at home and what their whole life has changed and there's no money coming in. Well, I, I have to say, and, and please, please don't be listening to this. Sorry, John. <laughs> She's looking up at, uh, at God <laughs> for those no, that are not are listening. <laughs> I was looking up at my other employer. Um, <laughs> I, I received an email. Everyone at one of the places to which I am associated received an email today regarding training that's been set up online. And, you know, with a, I swear there's like 25 modules, let's, let's mm. pretend. And what is today? The 8th of um, April. And it has a Dubai date of April 30th. That's, that's great. So I responded with a thank you very much. And how do you want us to keep track of our time to put mm. in for payroll? And um, there's crickets right. in my house right now. And <laughs> I'm getting all these little, um, you know, text messages from other staff saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. So they were expecting <laughs> you to do it without being paid? No, thank you for asking that question yeah. because I was the only one that stood up and asked. And yeah. I said, just bring casseroles when I'm unemployed. <laughs> yeah, but Lori, that's a good point because yeah. we've been told that if the employees are furloughed, we can't ask them to do anything. Including We're education. not even supposed to contact them. Right. So if you send them some mandatory in-services they have to do, you've just violated the curb, the furlough law or rules. Yeah. Right. Well, I, you know, I, I think the majority of us are, are per diem staff or whatever, but I just kind of laughed. I was like, I know everybody was. Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have an idea. Well, at this point in time, they are looking for the money. Any- <laughs> <laughs> right. It wasn't me. <laughs> So I have an idea. This is a great segue. You really did a great job of setting this up. So I have a great idea as to what you can do okay. during this time. Maybe you should attend like a virtual conference. Is there one? <laughs> <laughs> what a surprise. And we just happen to be... just happens to be one. <laughs> we just happen to be sponsoring the New World Conference 2020, which is going to be next week. We had to do this pretty quickly because our, our issue right now is we just don't know when people are going to be back to work. Um, so we're, we're, uh, we're putting together this uh, conference. We put it together very quickly. Uh, it will be the 14th and the 17th, which is a Tuesday and a Friday. We didn't put them next to each other just because we felt that, uh, given that, well, first of all, we can do that. Uh, and also, uh, it, it'll break things up a little bit. So, you know, many centers are, are either not in operation at the present time or have a very limited schedule. So to provide opportunities for continuing education for managers, employees, um, the, the podcast has announced uh, the New World Conference 2020, a virtual conference for ambulatory surgery centers. And our, our purpose here is to try to uh, fill that gap. You know, we know many of the state conferences have been canceled. We know that ASCA 2020 has been uh, postponed for now. And we're not meaning to replace those conferences. They, they fill a very important uh, role in our organizations. But we also know that when we get back to full steam, we're, we're not going to necessarily have a lot of time to, to attend conferences. Um, and many of these might not be able to be rescheduled. Uh, and of course, they're expensive. Uh, so uh, the alternative here is a, a two-day virtual ASC conference. We hope it's going to be, we know it's going to be fun and informative. Uh, and any of that uh, attended yesterday's uh, conference with uh, Lori uh, knows that we had a lot of fun. Uh, we had a couple of visits by a certain puppy, a 10-week-old puppy, who, uh, um, and a, a picture of a baby at one point, I think, Lori, too, right? 
I'll so, have to update. Yeah, you need to update. Um, our, our purpose is to try to make you feel like you're there as opposed to a regular webinar. I dislike webinars because I feel it's a one-way street. Here, we had a lot of good feedback. We had, um, you know, we uh, Lori was uh, doing, you know, 99% of the speaking, but we did have dialogue going on. Uh, we had people asking questions live, and that really did help into liven things up a bit. So that's our purpose for next week's conference. It'll be as, as much fun as we can. Um, you know, given the way we're doing things nowadays. Uh, so for, uh, so just to kind of give you a flavor for some of the, the sessions we have, uh, I've asked Anne and she, uh, graciously agreed to be the keynote speaker on, uh, on Tuesday morning. And she's going to sp- speak about surviving the challenges of a changing world. And I know she's been working hard on that presentation. So uh, Anne is, of course, an incredible speaker. She's uh, well beloved by by everyone. And I know that she's going to kick that uh, kick the conference off very well. And then uh, Lori and I are going to do a, a session on survey preparedness, where we're going to talk about you know, how to be prepared for a survey. What are some of the survey challenges now? We're going to talk a little bit about how surveys might be changing a little bit in the next couple I guess I should say years, uh, as a result of what we've uh, experienced here. And uh, anytime I do a, a session on survey preparedness, it is uh, it goes over very well simply because people always want to know, you know, what, what are surveyors looking for, and that is our purpose there. And then our friends with Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions are going to talk about cost-cutting strategies after, uh, after a challenging financial time. So as Keith talked about, you know, we're going we're gonna to have some financial challenges. So there, uh, uh, Encompass has uh, some ideas. They, uh, if you listen to a podcast, what was it, two months ago, Sue, they came on and talked about ways that uh, you can cut costs in a surgery center. And uh, uh, they have promised that they're going to come up with some or provide us some good guidance on, you know, what can we do to keep those costs low as we, uh, we have to look at the bottom line even more uh, intensely uh, after uh, we get back to work. And then Nelson Gomes over at uh, uh, Medicus IT, our friend, is uh, he was on a couple episodes ago, is going to talk about information technology challenges. Um, and again, one point I want to make about this conference is that it is not specifically focused on coronavirus. As a matter of fact, it's not focused on the coronavirus. What we want to talk about is what, you know, the types of things that you would attend a conference for anyway. But we will have a little bit of um, um, a focus on how do we get by this, you know, this is what's happened. How do we get beyond it? You know, from here on out. So that that's our, our purpose. Uh, so he'll talk about information technology challenges and some of the things that we've learned during this whole thing. We're going to have an opportunity for our sponsors uh, to uh, have some presentations during lunch. So uh, well, hopefully, what you'll do is you'll go grab lunch in your kitchen and uh, <laughs> come back and uh, and watch uh, or listen to the uh, uh, to the uh, the vendors talk about uh, you know their products. And then we're going to go into the afternoon of uh, that Tuesday and talk about re-energizing the revenue cycle with Keith, who is on today with us. So I know he's going to have some great uh, advice on on the revenue side. Not not really what he's talking about today, but you know the the, the, the kind of the bread and butter of uh, BHG uh, patient lending. Um, and then uh, Judy is going to talk about radiation safety requirements in an ASC. We know in the state of New York recently they hired new, seventy new surveyors. Uh, to uh, go around the state doing uh, literally annual radiation safety surveys. And Laura and Judy has been very much involved in that. She has a background in radiation uh, and radiation safety. Uh, so she's going to do that session. 
And then we're going to end our first day uh, with a panel discussion with all of our speakers on kind of what's next. You know, what, where do we go from here? And we'll, we'll ask for questions from the audience. We'll get, hopefully people will give us some uh, questions before uh, the session so we can prepare for it. And then on Friday, we'll begin with uh, a discussion of contract issues in ASC setting with Bruce Smith, who's, uh, from, uh, who's a lawyer who is dealing with a lot of the, the, uh, the issues right now uh, surrounding contract issues uh, during this type of a contract. So I, what we're hoping to do is learn some lessons about our contracts. We, there's always out clauses in contracts, and we never really read that section of those contracts to figure out, uh, you know, what would happen in the case of, uh, like, what happened here. So he's going to give some advice on how to make sure in the future we're well prepared for uh, good, solid contracts. And then uh, Victor Alves, uh, who is a, uh, uh, a, a pharmacist, is going to talk about current issues in pharmacy, including USP 797 and 800. A lot of the issues that uh, all of the surveyors will speak about on or will attest to here, we are always having problems with pharmacy. Uh, multi-use vials, uh, labeling of uh, of uh, syringes. What happens if you're you know you have outdated drugs and things like that? And then Alex and Jim uh, uh, Masters uh, are going to talk about disaster response process. Kind of uh, some of the lessons that we've learned in the trenches in the last uh, couple months here on the disaster preparedness, making sure that we uh, re-energize our disaster preparedness program. And then we're going to have a session with. Uh, 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 Laura Spring, who was on this podcast uh, probably about two weeks ago, talking, and, and she's going to talk about FLSA and personnel issues, an area that most of us are kind of weak on because we don't have a lot of training in personnel issues in the uh, uh, as nurses or as administrators like myself. So uh, she's going to talk about the very basic stuff, really, I think. Uh, and uh, to begin with, we'll talk about that and then also what the impact is uh, in difficult situations such as we're going through right now. And then Lori's going to talk about uh, her title of her session is Infection Control, a Heightened Sense of Awareness, Coming Back from COVID-19, where she'll kind of go into, uh, again, some of the lessons that we've learned from uh, this uh, uh, situation and uh, how, how we are going to handle the, the heightened sense of awareness that surveyors will have and that we will all have, including our patients will have uh, after this whole thing. I think the expectations are going to be much higher. And we'll end that second day in the conference with... Uh, uh, the New World After a Crisis, a Leadership Opportunity, which is another panel discussion with all of our speakers. So we're very excited about this. Please go to our website at ASCPodcast.com and sign up. We're already seeing a lot of people registering to it. If you are a client of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, you will have to pay for uh, to, to uh, sign up for the conference. But what will happen is if you're a retainer client on your June retainer uh, bill, we will rebate the full amount of your registration fee. So this is a way of trying to bring some cash in in order to pay the bills. Um, and uh, then we'll rebate it uh, in your uh, June bill uh, through Ambitore Healthcare Strategies. So um, I think you're going to find this is a great conference and we're expecting to have a, a lot of fun doing it. So anything else from my um, from my other speakers here today. We're, what time is it? 4.14. Thank you for having us on, and I'm really excited for the virtual conference next week. I think it's timely and necessary, and I'm glad that after a lot of the uh, chatter going around, someone kind of took the bull by the horns and got it rolling, John. So we appreciate that very much. Thank you. We're, we're glad to do it. Glad to do it. Uh, any questions? Any questions on any of the chats? Um, I can't read that. Can somebody read the comment on YouTube? Oh, I don't have YouTube. 
Can somebody copy it? Maybe. Don't look at me. <laughs> okay, hang on. I got it. Well, Holly, uh, so, now how? Oh, do you have it? Okay. Yeah. So Beth uh, said we plan to bring back some uh, some of her staff uh, with the SBL to work on competencies that need to be updated. Uh, policy review, education, and prep for certifications. And she's currently working with a retired infection control physician on education for the community as well. So that's uh, Beth up in uh, 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 upstate New York. Thank you, Beth. Thank you, Beth. Yeah, nice work. Okay. Anything else? Any other questions, comments? Ready for the lead out? Um, so again, I want to thank all of you. Um, we uh, will probably, I say this optimistically, not have to have another podcast this week. Uh, our expectation is to have one on Monday at this point. Uh, of course, if anything does break or if anything, uh, not break, well, you know, something comes up that's very urgent, uh, we uh, reserve the right to come back at a moment's notice here and we'll keep you all informed. Uh, and with that, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Hang on one second. You'd think by now I'd know this whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again, and please consider becoming a patron by going on our website at ASCPodcast.com and spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. Remember that uh, the uh, patrons help pay the bills here to keep the lights on in our, in our wonderful studios, and we really appreciate all the people that have signed up to become patrons of the podcast. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calritis, uh, Lori Rodericks, uh, and Ann Geyer. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. The ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. We actually have a question. Oh, okay. <laughs> and thank you for sending that in, Judy. If a patient had been exposed to an employee who later had been tested positive, does the patient have to be told and by by the whole by the surgeon or the ASC? So I guess who I think she's wondering. So if who the patient has been exposed patient, to an employee who later had been tested positive. Does the patient have to be told, and, and by whom? I think what you mean yeah, by whom, the by surgeon, who, the or, the surgeon or the ASC. So I'll, I'll answer what I know for now. So uh, the I think the question is, does the patient have to be told? So the answer to that is that, as we've been saying all along, you need to communicate with your local health department any exposure with somebody in the public. So if uh, you know, you should be telling your staff, obviously, if somebody has been exposed. But when it comes to the patient, you contact the local health department, and they'll give you advice as to what to do. Uh, does everybody agree on that one? Uh, I, I would agree with that. I mean, if the physician wants to do that outside um, the realm of the center, you, you can't control the physician. But Correct. you as the center would not take the lead on that. Have we been getting any feedback from people that we've advised to this, what they're hearing from the Department of Health, or is it so much on That's a good question, case, too. Basis? Yeah, it's been somewhat, I, I mean, my experience has like been somewhat mixed. Yeah. yeah, some of them in the beginning stages uh, told the center to, to uh, that they needed to shut down and tell the patient. And then later, I, I really haven't been getting a lot of feedback. I, I know that some of these centers have actually had challenges in even getting a hold of the department, of the local health department. That's what I wondered because we, yeah. we suggest that, and it's great, but it's um, 
you know, sometimes they can't get a hold of them. And I think it's probably changing all the time. As you get more and more people testing positive, they react less um, severely to it because they feel like it could happen to anyone. Yeah. We just, who put this ventilator? Unfortunately, though, that person that's been exposed is going to have to probably self-isolate. So they don't know to do that until somebody tells them. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, if we're telling another employee, your coworker's been exposed, now you, we have to shut down or you have to self-isolate, we owe that to the patient. It's just how are we going to do that? I agree. Um, so Beth Hogan, uh, thank you, Beth, just sent us a link to, um, this is for New York State. Actually, sorry, or was John, it? That, was, uh, that was from John Van Valkenburg. Oh, okay, thank you. He, he just sent out an email, um, and that link is actually, which we'll put up on the website, um, it's from New York State. Um, the governor has finally put out a way to... Um, give him information as to your ventilators. Um, so this is in response to that executive order. Okay. 202.14. So what we'll do is we'll put out, I'll, I'll try to do it uh, tonight. I'd definitely be in tomorrow's update. Uh, and again, we post the update on the website. I know I'm a day behind on this, but uh, what, what this is, and I just clicked on the link here. Uh, it goes to a website where you enter your uh, the name of your business or practice uh, your name and information about the model and the number, uh, the model, the, the quantity and the model of your anesthesia machines currently in your practice. Um, so this and it is does actually it does actually get into. There's a question: Do you have excess PPE available? Oh, thank you. So I didn't go all the. Oh heavens, this is long. Yeah. So it's not just ventilators, even though it's labeled For, ventilator survey. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And so this is the answer that we've been looking for. Right. Good, good. Did we read this? Beth's idea about what to do with... Yes. Okay. We're so sorry. Uh, this is... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. So uh, thank you for all of your feedback. And wow, we're really on top of things here. Uh, you're getting the latest news as it comes in. Um, and again, so a ventilator survey did come out from the state. This is, of course, for uh, New York State uh, Centers. Uh, we'll post that uh, and certainly be in, more in the update tomorrow. Any other questions? Any other comments? I have a comment. Sure. Um, I just got an email from a, a dear friend of mine who's also um, a pharmacy consultant. And one of the things that he said, so this is for any of you centers out there, um, his concern when it comes to medication shortages, that propofol might be big on that list. Mm. And I would tend to agree with him pretty much because of the fact that people on ventilators might be, um, oh, good point. you know, like a propofol drip so that they stay comfortable and they're not fighting the ventilators. And with that, he's also talking about maybe, um, like fentanyl and, and, um, those meds, which again would be used in that setting, um, and our IV solutions. So I'm not telling you to go out and stockpile, but I'm telling you to make sure you have what you're going to need to re-up, um, you know, to get started. Because the last thing you want is to get permission to start doing your cases again and then not have the items that you need to move forward. Yeah. Uh, but that, what a, a perfect timing to, to open that email. But yeah. he's, he's right. I, I agree with him wholeheartedly. We know... We, many of us lived through the last propofol shortage 
And um, some of us got our propofol from England and yeah. then had that recalled. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we don't want to be going through that nonsense again in antibiotics too, because, yeah, you know, they are using antibiotics. Thank you. So those are things I think we should be talking about. I'm, I'm speaking, I'm looking at all of my, all the people on the, uh, on the, on the call here right now, uh, uh, when we, uh, when we, um, have our, um, uh, panel discussions next week on Tuesday and Friday. I think those are very good things to start trying to predict what's going to be our challenges as we move forward. So, yeah. Okay. Right. Go, Sue. <laughs> <laughs> this, sorry. <laughs> this podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should, should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. We would like to thank our sponsors, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information System, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, BHG Patient Lending, and Medicus IT. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com. <laughs>